As we continue our sermon series here on life groups, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's page 944 if you grab the guest Bible in the back there. And of course, uh, as I, I try to remind you uh, periodically, if you're new and you haven't heard this before, uh, those Bibles are there for you to use or even keep. If you would like to keep one of those, you're welcome to it. Uh, the ones that are back there have got some use to them, so they're, they're not the newest copies in the world, but um, we're looking to replenish the supply here soon, and uh, if you would like a fresh, brand new copy that's uh, just for you, let me know, and I'll be happy to make sure you have one of those. That's our gift to you, uh, so please take advantage of that if you, if you want. Uh, the introduction this morning to this sermon is going to be a little longer than usual. That does not mean the sermon will be longer as a whole. It just means I'm going to take a little more time on the front end to establish our context for the passage that we're in because it's that important. So as I'm sort of uh, un unveiling to you where we are in, in the book of Ephesians, uh, keep your thumb there on, on chapter 4 because we're going to be uh, kind of bouncing around for just a couple of minutes. Um, those of you who know me know that this is among the top of the list of my favorite books of the Bible. I love this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. And if you're ever interested in, in learning more about the nature or the, the purpose of the church, well, Ephesians is a really great place to start. For three chapters leading up to where we are this morning, for three chapters, Paul has been laying out the, the eternal purposes of God from eternity past, where we see this magnificent dream that the father had to, to create for himself a people who resemble his son. It's an astonishing insight into the mind and the heart and the purposes of God from eternity past. That he wanted to create for himself a people who resemble his son and who are, who are holy as he, as he is holy. What he calls what Paul calls a new humanity. If you go back to chapter two and look at verse 15, he says one new people. It's as if it, God had in his mind all along to create, but also to recreate, to recreate the people that he had in his heart. And this people we call the church. It is Christ's new, God's new humanity. Everything that he wants to do in space and time through his son takes place here. And it's a place where all the discord and all the divisions and all the factions that are common to humankind, well, those are, those are mended. Those are abolished. Those are done away with. It is one unified, holy people. But then, after sort of gazing back in time to before time, Paul moves to the end of time. And he sees the, 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 the consummation of God's creation, the, the fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes by, by bringing all things under, to, together under the lordship of Christ. So he, he creates a people to, to create a people for himself with the goal of bringing all things under the lordship, all things under the headship of Christ. All of, all of the cosmos will be renewed and established under him. And you and I, as the church, will be co-heirs of all of these things. And these are mysteries that are marvelous and mind-blowing and staggering. And, and it's amazing that, that Paul can, can say these things in such a, sh a short amount of space. And it would take us, well, those of you who sat through my, my Ephesians Bible study all those years ago know it could take us months and years to ever get to the, even try to get to the bottom of the things he's saying here. I think uh, it took me a, a year and a half to get through six chapters uh, in a Bible study. So there's a lot of depth here we could go into. But at the end of the day, these truths have been inscripturated, preserved in the word, and have been entrusted to you and to me. We get to 
to, to know these things, we get to embody these things, and we get to share these things with the world. That's just chapters one through three. And you read these chapters, and you, you follow the, the flow of his thought, and then you get to chapter four, which not only represents the, the middle point of, of the book as a whole, but really a pivot point in everything Paul is saying. It's, it, it's the so what of the letter. If all these things are true, in light of, of God's plans from eternity past, and in light of his coming climactic purposes to be fulfilled at the end of time, chapter four begins the, well, here's what it means for us today. Here, here's what all this, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's the, the application, the implication, the, the way this is expressed in your life and through your life today. And so, verse one, you have been called by God. Now live a life worthy of that calling. In light of, of the dream God had for his church, in light of the, 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 the fulfillment of all of his plans, today, live a life worthy of what you've been called to. Verse two, love one another with humility and gentleness and patience. Verse three, be peaceful. Be unified. In fact, your job is to diligently preserve the unity that the Spirit has produced in your midst. The church images God in this world by its unity. But it also images God in this world by its diversity. That's interesting, isn't it? Just as there's one God who is three persons in the same way, there is one faith, one baptism, one church, and yet there's also, in verse 7, a, a diversity of gifts within the church. There is no lifeless, colorless uniformity among God's people. No, there is diversity within the unity. And it's based on more than our different cultures and our different life experiences. It's based more than just on our different personalities, although all those things are part of who we are. We're, we're sort of a, a tapestry of, of different people. But the diversity within the church is based on more than that. It's based on the various gifts that Christ has distributed for the enrichment of our common life. I love when, when Pastor Jeff uh, has the, the orchestra here on Sundays. It's you know, it's not every week, but it's, it's, it's frequent enough that uh, you don't have to wait all year round for, for them to come back. And I just love the, the diversity of the instruments there. It's this beautiful, talking about tapestry, it's this rich, diverse, harmonious tapestry of sound that, that just fills the space and it's so worshipful and it's, it's just a delight to hear. But imagine if we, all, if we had seven or eight people up here, but they, they were all playing just one, the same instrument in the same notes, It'd be a very different experience, wouldn't it? I'm just picturing, you know, eight John Millers up here with a, with a trumpet. It'd be like what brought the walls of Jericho down. You know, we, we don't want to, to implode this building. So we're going to stay away from that. John, we love your trumpet, but we need your trumpet and everything else. It's everything together that makes that beautiful, harmonious sound. And so God's one holy people have been given not just a gift, but a diversity of gifts. And where do they come from? Who is the one that distributes the gifts among the people of God? Well, I know what you're thinking. The typical answer to that question is, well, the Holy Spirit does that. And you'd be right from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Absolutely, the Spirit is the one attributed to, uh, the, the gift giving is attributed to there in that passage. But if you go to places like Romans chapter 12, you'll see that there it is the Father who's given the credit of distributing the gifts. And here in our passage that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna read here, it says that 
Christ is the gift giver in verse 11. And then he'll go on in this passage to quote Psalm 68, which speaks of how God liberated his people from captivity. It's that beautiful psalm where he talks about uh, God ascended to his holy place in Zion. He led his, his defeated captives in a victory march, then distributed the spoils to his people at the end. And, and Paul's point is, in the same way, Christ too has ascended to the heights. Not to the heights of some mountain on earth. No, he has ascended to the heights of heaven. And his, and his captives, that train of captives that follow behind him, they are the rulers and the principalities and the powers that he publicly shamed that he publicly defeated by his cross and resurrection. And at the end of the victory march, what did he do? He gave gifts to his people. This is Paul's point. And, and, and actually, in verse 7, he says, literally, in the Greek, the gift. Interesting, isn't it? The gift. Verse 7, as literal as I can translate it into English from the original language, goes something like this. To each one of us was given grace, and that word grace could also mean gifts, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Gifts or grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The gift, that Greek word dorias, which all throughout the book of Acts refers to nothing other than, you guessed it, the gift of of the Holy Spirit. He, the third person of the Trinity, is the gift who then gives us all that we need as his people to carry out everything that he desires for us to do. And so together, these verses, along with Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, 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 and the New Testament in its entirety and the Bible as a whole, together we can form a, a rich, solid Trinitarian foundation for any conversation about gifts within the church. There is one God, the Father, who through the work of his Son has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift who gives gifts. And that's Paul's focus here when we come to this passage. It's not on some sort of exhaustive catalog or inventory of all the different types of gifts. That's usually the, the sum total of our interest in the topic, isn't it? We, we want to see, we want to see it on this. We want the menu. I want to see the menu of all the different things that, that God enables his church to do. And I'm really interested in those ones that uh, pertain to me. The other ones I don't really care so much about. I want to know the things that, that pertain to me. And that's usually the sum total of our interest in the topic. But that's not Paul's concern here. Paul's concern is not to give us some exhaustive catalog of all the different things. He's not giving us a total list of the gifts. No, Paul is concerned, once again, the context. That's why I'm taking so long to introduce this passage. Paul's concern here is with God's eternal purposes. Paul is concerned with, with what God has in mind from eternity past and for eternity to come. And God is the one who in the present is working this out in our lives. That's Paul's focus. What God planned, where everything is going, and how it's being worked out today. Okay, so with that in mind, we come at last to our sermon text. So if you would, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11 and ending in verse 16. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. 
Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now going back to verse 11 there, the first one I read, it says, to the church, Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And for what purpose? What is the purpose of the giving of these gifts to the church? Well, is it to do the ministry? That's the question. Is it to do the ministry? Well, I think by now, We've talked about this topic enough times over the years that for many of you, if hopefully not most of you, um, you know better than that. You know better than to read this as if Paul is saying it is the work of the leaders of the church or the clergy of the church to do the ministry. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches that struggle on this point. They have a very hard time thinking clearly about this, this what Paul is saying here. There's this really dysfunctional sort of clergy, laity, hard division that is detrimental to the lives of many churches. It is one that sees the professional, you know, professional clergy, the, the paid sort of staff as somehow distinct from, you know, everyone else. As if, you know, these are the ones who do the things and then there's the rest. Now, if you use the word minister in, in the sense of like a title, like a professional title, like Pastor Sean is a minister, then fair enough. I, I accept that, and, and that's perfectly acceptable here. But that's not how Paul is understanding or talking about that word in this passage. He's not talking about professional ministers and then the church. And I think, I wonder if part of the reason why we struggle with, with thinking how Paul wants us to think here in this passage is due to the way that verse 12 in our text here was rendered in the King James. You've, you've probably heard about this before. It is called the fatal comma there in verse 12. It's inserted in the King James after the word saints so that the King James reads like this. And it's up there on the screen. Thank you for putting on the screen there for us. Verse 11, Christ gave, you know, the list of, of Christian leaders, these gifts of Christ to the church. Verse 12, why? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you see the difference? Do you see how that English rendering gives us the, 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 the idea that verse 12 is a threefold job description of the professional minister? As if it's the minister's job to work towards the perfecting of the saints, to do the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. Listen, that comma has no business being in that text in the English. Not linguistically, 
nor theologically. It bears an aristocratic flavor that I believe is repugnant to the palate of God. One that divides the you know, special ministers from the ordinary laity. I think instead that a superior English rendering recognizes the second clause in that sentence as dependent upon the first. That is, Christ gave Christian leaders, as we read in the NLT a moment ago, which isn't a perfect translation. I'm not saying it's, it's the, the only one that you should read, but I think it's better here because it says Christ gave leaders of the church for what purpose? Well, to equip God's people to do his work. Oh, that's a vast difference, isn't it? That comma makes all the difference in the world as you think about the structure of the church as God intends. The reason Christ gave the gifts of, of pastors and evangelists and teachers and apostles and prophets. Why did God give those to the church? To do the ministry? No. To equip you. You. God's people. To do the ministry. That is a massive distinction. Indifference that has huge ramifications for how we view ourselves as a church and how we carry ministry out here in this place. And I'm convinced that it is not my job to do the ministry. What is my job? Well, it's to help and encourage you to do the ministry. It is to give you the tools, to give you the resources that you need to provide you with opportunities to serve, to set you up for success, to see you thrive in your service to Christ, to support you in all the work that God has called you to do in me, us together. And what is God's purpose in all this? Why has God so structured his church in this manner? Well, the answer is right there in the text. It's, it's to do what? to build up the body of Christ. That is his goal in all of this. Well, why has he given pastors and teachers and leaders to equip God's people to do his work? It's so that his church would be built up, that we would come to a place of unity and maturity. That's what, it, that's what a built up church looks like. Verse 13, one that is united in faith, one that is mature in the Lord. In other words, it's one that is marked by a oneness and a holiness that images God himself. I mean, that's how Paul began his letter. I mean, he's not introducing some new concept here halfway through his letter. It's not like he talked about some things, but now he's swung wide here in chapter four, and he's gonna talk about a whole new other set of things that really have nothing to do with everything he's been saying. No, this is all one continuous thought for Paul. He began right there in the first few verses of chapter one. What has God done in eternity past? Oh, in his mind, he, he dreamt of a people who would be conformed to the likeness of his son. A people called the elect. He elected, he chose a people for himself that would resemble his son. People who were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. But what Paul is now telling us here in chapter four, as he's working out the implications of that, as he's giving us the so what, what does that mean for our lives today? How, is, how does this happen in space and time? He, he's telling us here, and this is a mind-blowing thing for me, just like what we were talking about last week from Hebrews was mind-blowing to me. He's telling us here that this doesn't just happen when the Holy Spirit does his work. No, this happens 
when we do the work the Holy Spirit enables us to do. He gives the gifts. We have to use them. There is responsibility in your life and in my life to see the things of God fulfilled in our midst. Yes, God, God is the, the energizing, revitalizing force behind, behind it all. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Thank you, Addison, for reminding us that with him, you can do all things. But the flip side of that is, apart from him, you can do nothing. We absolutely, we, we're all lost and dead in our sins and trespasses. We are hopelessly in darkness apart from him. He's come and he shed his light. All this is in Ephesians. He came and he shed his light. He's broken the chains. He set us free. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness and for service, for ministry. But it's up to us to do it. He's not gonna do it for us. He gives the gifts we have to use them. Just like the pastor who wrote Hebrews in the passage we were last week, Paul sees the church as central to the plans and purposes of God, but not just as the venue where God carries out his purposes. He sees the church as the means by which he carries out his purposes. Isn't that interesting? The church isn't just the end result of all that God is doing. The church is how he's doing what he's doing as he incorporates us into his eternal plans, as he uses us to carry these things out in each other's lives, in the world. Last week, we saw from Hebrews how in order to persevere, we must do what? Draw near to Christ. Hold fast to our confession, our hope. But also, just as equally as important, continue to meet. Continue to meet. Friends, this right here, what's happening in this space, is essential. It is indispensable to your perseverance as a Christian in this world. This is not, you know, the icing on the top. I have all that I need in Jesus, and thank, thank you also for the, the bonus of the church. Don't mishear what I'm saying, but to experience all that you have in Jesus is to experience life in his body. It's not an either or proposition. It is a both and always. We need one another to persevere. And likewise, here in chapter four of Ephesians, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who produces unity in our midst, all the way back in the first couple of verses of the chapter. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us one. But we have to do what? we have to diligently preserve what he has produced. He's not going to preserve it. He enables it. He provides it. We preserve it. God is the gift giver. None of our giftedness as Christians can be attributed to ourselves. He is the one who gives the gifts. And when I say he, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is always a triune gift giving. Just like all of salvation is a triune salvation from the Father through the Son, in the Spirit. From beginning to end, it is God, three in one, at work in your life. He is the gift giver, absolutely, but we are gifted to do his work and build each other up. We don't take credit for anything. 
It's never true that you or I save ourselves or deserve any accolades for anything we become in Christ or ever do in Christ. But it is also true that never in the life of the body is being together optional to your perseverance, to your effectiveness in serving, or your maturity in holiness. You need one another for that. To persevere, to grow, to become everything God desired us to be. And I'm wondering, where are the churches, I said this last week, where are the churches teaching that? Where are the churches that live that out, that, that truly believe in the, the biblical centrality of the church in the plans and purposes of God that see this right here as essential. I'm having a hard time finding them. You'll find lots of churches that say, you know, you need to go to church, right? And rightfully so. I love the Imperial Death March on that note. Roxana, thank you. No, don't apologize. That's perfect. The only thing, the timing was off. You should have played it when I was walking across the platform <laughs> to preach. No apologies. Because the second I get upset with anybody for getting to turn off their phone, I will be the one whose phone goes off in the next thing. So I have nothing but grace up here, I promise. I promise. <laughs> Where are the churches? Yeah, there's, there's lots that will say, you know, you need, you come to church, you need it. You need to be here. And I agree with that. But what about the churches that say, come to church, the church needs you? The church needs you. Where are they? Where are the churches that, that view every single person? sitting in their pews or their chairs or whatever the apparatus is that they chose to seat people in. Maybe they're standing. Where are the churches that sees every single person as essential for that church to become everything God ever desired it to be? You don't just need me to preach to you. And that is often the, the sum total of the, the relationship envisioned between churches and their pastor. That the pastor exists to come and preach to me. And that's all, that's the relationship. It is, is very one, one directional, isn't it? It's as if in, in my relationship to you, there's a one-way street. And it is me preaching to you. Now listen, you need me to preach to you. I mean, Paul said it himself. Pastors are a gift to the church. And that's not me trying to puff myself up and be like, Like, I'm God's gift to you. Actually, I am God's gift to you, biblically speaking, but not like Pastor Sean thinks he's God's gift to you speaking. I feel like I'm treading on really thin ice here. <laughs> yes, pastors are Christ's gift to the church. It's a beautiful gift. But it is not a one-way street. Yes, you need to hear the word of God proclaimed faithfully, passionately, relevantly to your life. You need someone who will divide the word of truth rightly. And many of you have come to this church from places where that wasn't happening. And increasingly that seems to be the case. And I'm not trying to 
dunk on any other churches. I'm just saying there seems to be an absence of biblical preaching in our pulpits. You need biblical preaching, but you don't just need me to preach to you. I need you to speak truth and love to me. It is only ever a two-way street. I have noticed a recurring theme in staff meetings, board meetings, committee meetings, whatever meeting over the years that I've been in where people without seminary degrees are asked to lead a devotional. And that recurring theme is insecurity. I, I shouldn't be the one who shares this, right? I, you went to school for seven years. You should be doing this. And there's all these like apologies and excuses. And I've heard it over and over and over again. And I want to tell you, first of all, that sentiment represents a vast overestimation of my own biblical expertise, it also represents a vast overestimation of my intellectual prowess or my ability to retain information. Yes, I learned a lot in school, but I forgot a lot from school. I think I would make Yoda proud. You know, you must unlearn what you have learned. I'd make a great Jedi. I've unlearned a lot. So I don't know it all, folks. Now, those of you who know me know that I don't know it all, so I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Those of you who don't know me, please be, be assured. I don't know it all, and I know that I don't know it all. But here's my second and more important point about this. Even if I do know it already, oh, please tell me again. Please. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about God's magnificent dream from before the beginning of time to conform me into the image and likeness of his son. Say to me, as if for the first time, how God has opened up the storehouses of heaven and lavished all of the riches that he has upon us through his son and in his spirit. Tell me again. Tell me again. Speak truth into my life. Speak love into my life. Speak truth in love into my life. There must never be some hard clergy laity divide in the church. You are all ministers. And you all play a crucial role in the building up of the body of Christ. So why life groups? Why life groups? Why are we talking about life groups? Well, the answer to me, and I hope to you at this point, is obvious. Now, I, I feel like a, a bit of a, um, a qualification is required here. We've been talking about life groups and the the picture has been on the screen and you have the, the graphic on the front of your bulletin. Yes, we've been talking about life groups, but really what I care about 
more is not just that everyone is in a life group per se. I care about any means of diving more deeply into the life of this church than just showing up on Sunday morning. By the way, show, thank you for being here. It's two weeks in a row where I want to make sure you know that I am grateful that you are here. You need to be here. Going back to what I said earlier, you do need to be here. Thank you. But I'm talking about a little, a little more, a little deeper, a little more intimate, a little smaller, some way. Maybe it's a life group. Maybe it's Sunday school. Maybe it's men's ministry. Maybe it's women's ministry. Maybe it's a, an accountability partner. Some way that you are intentionally and intimately connecting and growing and serving with other Christians. Not just filling in the chairs, but going deep into the life of the body. I was completely transparent in my annual report back in November regarding my intentions for 2023. And I just know that every one of you read all six 10-point font pages of that report. I know you did. You probably read it like three times. Well, at least you insomniacs did because you needed something to help you fall asleep at night. Oh, I can't sleep again. Might as well get Pastor Sean's annual report out and start reading it. You get to about word five and you're sawing logs. But I was, I was completely transparent in that report when I talked about my goals for the coming year. When I said, I think it was like point three or four somewhere in there, my goal is 100% involvement of every regular Sunday morning attender in a small group of some kind. 100%. And that's, and that's problematic, right? Because you should never aim for 100% of anything because <laughs> you're setting yourself up for failure. Well, maybe, but it's my goal nonetheless. I envision a church where every one of you Every one of you is part of something deeper, something more intimate than what we could ever have here on a Sunday morning. And it's not to meet some, you know, arbitrary goal or quota. It's not to, to you know, be able to put a label somewhere on the website or somewhere that says something about us. No, what's the goal? It's the goal that you and I might become all that God has revealed in his word that he desires his church to be. That's the goal. It's not some arbitrary thing that I've come up with. I'm trying to think, how can we best live this out? And I'm convinced that it is this and something more. Every time someone new comes to this church or comes to me and wants to know, hey, how can I, you know, I want to get more, more deep somehow. I want to serve somewhere. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to grow somehow. I want to meet people. Any, whatever the angle is, every person that comes to me and says that, the answer is the same. Join a life group. I mean, that's why I told Will Pierce. You remember Pastor Will? He started coming to church years ago. He came to this church once upon, you know, once upon a time, a long time ago, long before you, Joanne. It was a long time ago, an actual long time ago. And then, and then he left, and he was gone for a long time. But then he felt, the, I know. <laughs> yeah, Laura says he's digging himself a hole. I know. I'm, this is the story of my life, Laura. I'm always digging myself into a hole. But Pastor Will... He started coming. The Lord was telling him, you need to get back to church. So he came in. He sat right there on the back row. 
for a few Sundays. He just came in, last one in, first one out. Kept to himself. He just, he just knew he had to be here. But what I noticed about him is that each week, he was a, over time, he started moving a, a, little, a row closer. And then a little closer. And he came to me one day. He said, hey, can we meet you know, in your office? I'm like, sure. So we sat down and had some basic, you know, get to know each other kind of discussions. And he said, hey, you know, I feel the Lord calling me to get back in the church. And I just, I want to get involved. I want to serve. And I, you know, where can I serve? And I said, well, why don't you join a life group first? Why? Well, because there you're actually going to, you're going to get to know people. And you're going to get to be known by people. And, and God will make clear his call upon your life there. And over time, he kept moving closer, moving closer, until one day, he was a pastor here. Now, I know I just frightened everyone sitting in the back of this building. <laughs> They're like, I'm never moving one row forward, ever. <laughs> but you in the front row, look out. that's what I care about friends that not that we have some sort of arbitrary thing met but that we figure out somehow to live this out to work to see this worked out in our lives and I think life groups are where where it starts where we connect with others we share life together where we grow in our discipleship where we flourish in the exercising of our gifts where we serve together where we do the ministry together and that is the pathway to verse 13 the pathway to attaining verse 13 such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Verse 15, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. As you and I each do the things that he called us to do for the sake of building up his church, as we each do its, our own special work, that, that helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I might be the most radical person you know because I actually believe that a Christian cannot truly grow as God intends alone. I really firmly, I believe that. It is a core, essential statement of dogma at the level of my heart. Show me one person claiming to be a Christian who is truly drawing nearer to God, truly going deeper in their faith, truly becoming more like Christ in holiness by themselves. Show me one. It never happens. I think John Wesley had it right in the preface to his 1739 edition to uh, hymns and sacred poems, he wrote this. Solitary religion is not to be found in the gospel of Christ. 
In fact, he says, it, it's directly opposite to the gospel of Christ. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social religion. The gospel of Christ knows no holiness but social holiness. Friends, you and I can never become more like Christ in isolation from the church. Sure, you might go off somewhere and you vacate the premises and absent yourself from the people of God and pick up a book. You might learn some data about Jesus, but you will never become more like him by yourself. If the one holy God himself is a triunity of persons in communion, well, then the one new humanity remade after his image can be no different. Persons in communion. So, find a way, friends. It doesn't have to be, a, there's no one size fits all cookie cutter solution to any of this for your life. In fact, I think in our life groups brochure, it says something like groups for your life, meaning what, what, how can we fit this? How can we make this work in your life? Yes, you have to make it a priority. You have to be intentional. You have to put effort into it. You have to give up time. You have to sacrifice something somewhere. Every one of our lives here is so jam-packed full of stuff. Something has to go. And that's true for the laity and it is true for the professional clergy. You have to find, you have to find a way to make it work. But there is no one-size-fits-all solution here. That's not anyone's heart to force you into something that doesn't, that doesn't work. But that being said, find a way to go deeper than you could ever go here on Sunday morning. Find a way where you can give of yourself, of the, the resources that God has given you for my sake, for the sake of the person next to you. Your gift is not so that you can check that thing on the inventory and tell people, why well, I have this gift. So, how are you using it to benefit the people around you? Find a way to go deeper. Find a way where you can give of yourself. You can exercise the giftedness that the Holy Spirit has given to you for that purpose. Find a way where you can, you can share with others that special work that Christ has enabled you to do and receive. Give and receive. And somehow in the midst of all that, together this church will grow in the knowledge of Christ but also in the likeness of Christ. I want to grow in him with you. Lord, thank you that we get to live out your magnificent dream together. Your dream was never to conform a collection of individuals into the likeness of your son. Your dream was to conform one new humanity called the church into the likeness of your son. And it is true that individually you transform us from the inside out. Individually we say yes to your grace 
by faith and you come and you, you flip things upside down and turn us inside out and you take us from what we were to what you want us to be. That's, that's Ephesians chapter two in a nutshell. You were once in darkness. You were once dead in your sins. You were once enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil. You were once by nature a child of wrath, but now in Christ you are not that anymore. Yes, you do that in individual people's lives, but you're not saving us out of individualism into more holy individualism. You're saving us to be a part of your people. Just like the people were liberated from bondage in Egypt to become your people at Sinai, so too you have liberated us from the bondage of sin so that we would become your people by the power of your spirit. Holy Spirit, you make the church just like you make every Christian a Christian. You make the church the church. So come and have your way in our midst. Come and produce your life, your unity, your holiness in our midst and give us everything we need to keep our end of the, the equation going. Give us all that we need to preserve the unity you're producing. Give us all we need to exercise our gifts so that one another can be built up to the complete stature of Christ. That's possible in this life. There's hope in grace, but that hope depends upon us stepping into all you've called us to be. Lord, we have a part in all this. It's a partnership. You deserve all the credit, but you don't do all the work. So Lord, help us to, to grapple with these things and seek to understand what it means for us as a church. And Lord, give us the, the courage and the strength and the resolve to work it out in our lives. It's not the same for everyone. It's different for me as it is for them. But you want us all to grow together. You fit us together. I love that. Thank you for fitting me into the lives of this, this church, these people. And thank you for fitting them into my life. There's nothing sweeter in this world than that. So Lord, we thank you. Help us to know how to respond, to do what's next. And Lord, I pray that whatever it is, that you would be the one that receives all the glory and the honor and the praise. And that this church would be what you've called it to be for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of the lost and the dying in this world. Lord, have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.